Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. In August 1996, one of Hollywood's hottest directors was wrapping up a film shoot near Halifax, Nova Scotia. It was just the beginning of what would become an unprecedented film production, continuing for the next several months in Mexico. But already, the director was living up to his reputation for being extraordinarily demanding on the cast and crew. At around midnight on the last night of shooting, the crew broke for lunch, and mostly everyone helped themselves to a bowl of seafood chowder, including the 42-year-old director. Almost immediately, he left the set to throw up. And when he came back, all hell had broken loose. Some people were laughing uncontrollably. Others were crying and throwing up. In all, 60 people who ate the chowder were taken to hospital. Doctors initially thought it was food poisoning, but following toxicology tests, it was revealed that the drug PCP, also known as angel dust, was to blame. The chowder had been spiked, and although the culprit has never been revealed, the working theory remains. It was payback for how awful the director had been on set. And despite the rocky start, filming continued. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we look back at the making of an epic movie that captured the hearts of millions and changed just how big a blockbuster could actually be. This is the story of James Cameron's Titanic. Growing up near Niagara Falls, Ontario, James Cameron was the kind of kid the jocks liked to pick on. A science geek who enjoyed sketching dinosaur bones and ancient artifacts on trips to the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto. He also liked to build things, stuff that either went up in the air or into the deep. His hero was oceanographer, filmmaker, and author Jacques Cousteau, and he was obsessed with scuba diving. It's not surprising, really, that he went on to make movies like Titanic, The Terminator, and Avatar. And the childhood bullying might also explain why Cameron became what many have called the scariest man in Hollywood. Perhaps it was a bit of a revenge of the nerd scenario. Legend has it the six-foot-two director once stood nose-to-nose with Arnold Schwarzenegger during the filming of True Lies and shouted directly into the face of the former bodybuilding champ because he was late. But before that was even in the realm of possibility, at 17, James Cameron moved with his family to a small city in Southern California. He enrolled in a junior college, then dropped out, taking a string of blue-collar jobs, like a truck driver for a local school district. At the age of 23, he married waitress Sharon Williams, who would be the first of five wives. Hollywood didn't seem to be in Cameron's future, but while he was making deliveries in his truck, Cameron was constantly thinking about visual effects and filmmaking, a secret dream of his since watching Star Wars and Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey when he was a teenager. 
In fact, during his blue-collar days, Cameron made a short film with some friends called Xenogenesis, which told the story of a futuristic man in an orange jumpsuit who battles an armored robot with a metal pincer for a hand. The movie was actually good enough to land him a job sculpting models for prolific filmmaker Roger Corman in 1980. Corman's studio made a string of low-budget B-movies from its Los Angeles headquarters and was a training ground for several other legendary filmmakers, including Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, and Jonathan Demme. Cameron quickly proved himself there and began designing sets for Corman, and within a year, he was tapped to direct his first movie. Piranha 2 The Spawning was a Jaws knockoff, and it flopped at the box office but it inspired Cameron to take control of his career. Three years later, he wrote his first movie, based on a terrifying dream he had. It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And it absolutely will not stop, ever, until you are dead. Cameron said he started writing The Terminator after waking up from a dream about a metallic death figure that rose phoenix-like from the fire. Released in 1984, the movie starred Arnold Schwarzenegger and Linda Hamilton, who would become Cameron's fourth wife. It jump-started the filmmaker's career. In fact, before he was even finished making it, he was hired to write the sequel to Alien. From there, a series of popular and innovative movies followed, The Abyss, Terminator 2, and True Lies. Each one seemed to outdo the last, and high-tech with new special effects came with much bigger budgets. 1991's Terminator 2 became the first movie to cost $100 million. Cameron's reputation also continued to grow as a furiously demanding director. He controlled everything on set, sometimes even grabbing a makeup brush and doing touch-ups himself. Cameron also became known as a screamer who once made actor Ed Harris cry on the set of The Abyss. On another movie shoot, brave crew members wore t-shirts mocking Cameron that read, do it my way or do another movie. Regardless of who he tormented, though, he made the studio's money. For example, Terminator 2 earned back $519 million on that $100 million budget. So to the studios, it all seemed worth it. By the mid-90s, Cameron wasn't yet the king of the world, but he was definitely one of the top sci-fi action directors out there. And he probably could have made any film he wanted. So it was kind of a shock when he pitched his next movie idea to 20th Century Fox. In the spring of 1995, James Cameron sat down with Fox Studio chairman Peter Chernin to discuss his latest idea. But it wasn't your usual movie pitch. Cameron had brought along a book of paintings of the Titanic by artist Ken Marshall. He placed the book on the table between them and opened it to a dramatic recreation of the British ship sinking as lifeboats rowed away from it. The director pointed at the image and simply said, Romeo and Juliet on that. And that was it. That was his entire pitch. Like many people before him, Cameron was fascinated with the tragic tale of the Titanic the luxury passenger liner that sank on its maiden voyage from England to New York City in 1912 after striking an iceberg. He first began dreaming about making a film about the disaster that killed approximately 1,500 people after watching a 1986 National Geographic documentary called Secrets of the Titanic, 
He believed the best way to humanize the tragedy was through a fictional love story set on board the ship. But before he even started writing the script, Cameron wanted to explore the actual Titanic shipwreck. So he asked Chernin for $2 million to fund a deep-sea expedition. The money was used to rent two Russian deep-diving submersibles and a crew that would take him and underwater cameraman Al Giddings down 12,000 feet to the shipwreck. The site lies on the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, 700 miles east of Nova Scotia and about 300 miles south of Newfoundland. Several documentary teams visited the wreck after it was discovered in 1985, but Cameron would be the first to shoot with a movie camera at that depth. His brother helped to design a 35mm camera encased in titanium to withstand the frigid cold and crushing deep-sea pressure, along with a customized pan and tilt system aided underwater by an array of lights. The crew also used a remotely operated vehicle that they named Snoop Dogg, which was equipped with a camera, to poke around inside the ship, discovering the remains of a first-class suite and elaborate chandeliers overgrown with mollusks and home to deep-sea creatures. Years later, in a documentary about the making of Titanic, Cameron said those dives in 1995 ignited a passion in him that impacted the final version of the movie that he made. In a weird way, I felt like I owed it to Titanic. I know that sounds strange, but when you go to a place like this, you go to a place of great tragedy where people have died, and you explore it and you see it, it becomes a part of your life and you become connected to that story and you become connected to that tragedy. So as a result, I felt a kind of a mandate to do my best as a filmmaker to tell that story. Cameron and the crew captured a treasure trove of haunting images during the 25-day underwater expedition that served multiple purposes. The material helped the special effects team and art department recreate detailed models of the wreck and its interior with incredible accuracy. And some of the stunning footage would also be incorporated into Cameron's movie, which when he finally sat down to write the script, told the story of a deep-sea explorer played by Bill Paxton who, while searching for Titanic treasure, meets a 101-year-old woman named Rose, who recounts her experience on the doomed ship in extended flashback scenes. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. When a young British actress read Cameron's script about the legendary shipwreck, she was brought to tears. And in that moment, she absolutely knew she had to have the part of Rose. 21-year-old Kate Winslet had her breakthrough movie role two years earlier in 1994 in the New Zealand thriller Heavenly Creatures. She was then cast in a run of period movies, including Sense and Sensibility, for which she received an Oscar nomination as Best Supporting Actress. Is love a fancy or a feeling? No. It is immortal as immaculate truth. Tis not a blossom shed as soon as youth drops from the stem of life for it will grow in barren regions where no waters flow, nor ray of promise cheats the pensive gloom. 
Winslet came from a theater family. Her dad was an actor, and her grandparents ran a small theater in Reading, England. She went to acting school at the age of 11, and at 15 was cast in a British TV show. By the time she read the Titanic script, Winslet was a woman who knew her way around the industry, and she was determined to get what she wanted. She phoned her agent and said, look, just get me Jim Cameron's phone number. When she got through on the director's mobile phone, he was on the highway in his Humvee and reluctantly pulled over to take Winslet's call. The actor told him she had to be in his movie and said, quote, I am Rose. I don't know why you're even seeing anyone else. Cameron, who has said he wanted an Audrey Hepburn type to play first-class passenger Rose DeWitt Bucator, had already considered several other actors, including Gwyneth Paltrow, Claire Danes, and Reese Witherspoon. They had all passed. Even still, Cameron wasn't 100% sure Winslet was the right fit. But eventually, her skill and enthusiasm won him over. And now, it's hard to even imagine anyone else playing Rose. As for his leading man, Jack Dawson, the third-class dreamboat, Cameron imagined a young Jimmy Stewart type and considered Chris O'Donnell and Matthew McConaughey, but decided they were too old for the part since Jack is just 20 in the script. It was casting director Mally Finn who turned Cameron's attention to another young actor who had recently starred in a modern adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. Why then, oh brawling love, oh loving hate, Oh, anything of nothing first create. Heavy lightness, serious vanity, misshapen chaos of well-seeming forms. Leonardo DiCaprio's first brush with acting happened at just five years old when he appeared on the kids' show Romper Room. By the age of 14, he was acting in commercials and landed a reoccurring role on the TV show Growing Pains. His breakthrough movie role happened at age 17, when he acted opposite Robert De Niro in the 1992 film This Boy's Life. DiCaprio didn't go to college or even acting school. He says he learned the craft simply by watching other actors at work. Which makes it even more impressive that in 1993, at the age of 19, he was nominated for a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for his role in the critically acclaimed film What's Eating Gilbert Grape. As soon as DiCaprio was mentioned to Cameron, he was sold. He was convinced the young actor would be perfect in the role of Jack. But DiCaprio was far less eager to be part of Titanic. I don't want to live in a world where Leonardo DiCaprio is not the star of Titanic. I don't, because by the way, the ship would sink without him, metaphorically, literally, that's media personality Jesse Cruikshank, host of the podcast Phone a Friend. She's also a Titanic superfan. In her eyes, DiCaprio was perfectly cast. He's so completely charismatic. He has so much energy. It's so rare to see an actor be that bold in a performance to have that much energy. Like he is a 10 from the minute you see him on screen and he just he goes up from there. But initially, DiCaprio wanted nothing to do with Titanic. The problem was Cameron kept describing it as Romeo and Juliet on a sinking ship. And DiCaprio had just made a Romeo and Juliet movie and didn't want to be typecast. Plus, he thought the screenplay was boring. He agreed to go to a casting meeting anyway, but then he refused to read with Winslet. And when Cameron insisted, 
The director said DiCaprio read it once, then started goofing around, and he could never get him to focus on it again. Kate Winslet also badly wanted DiCaprio to take the part. She too was convinced he'd make the perfect Jack. While he was still on the fence trying to decide, both actors attended the Cannes Film Festival. Winslet did a little detective work and found out where he was staying, then slipped out of a press junket to persuade him to make the movie. Eventually, DiCaprio relented and signed his first seven-figure contract, reportedly earning $2.5 million for the role. Winslet, for her efforts, received only $2 million. Before filming began, Cameron oversaw the design of a massive replica of the RMS Titanic with the help of blueprints provided by the original ship's builder, Harland and Wolf. The 775-foot ship built for the movie could tilt 90 degrees on hydraulics and be flooded at will. It reportedly cost $40 million to build, which is five times more than the original ship that set sail in 1912. Cameron's creation was nearly a full-scale replica. Just a few sections were removed to save space, and they were replaced with digital models. Because of its massive size, there was no tank large enough to hold the replica ship. So Fox, for the first time ever, built a studio from the ground up on a 40-acre site in Baja, California, Mexico. 10,000 pounds of dynamite was used to blow a hole large enough to build the 17-million-gallon tank required for Cameron's vessel. The director, who was known for his relentless attention to detail, made sure every aspect of the replica was an accurate reproduction. Everything from the carpeting and wallpaper to the furniture had to be approved by the director. Even small-scale props like silverware and ashtrays were stamped with the White Star Line emblem to ensure they were historically accurate. Cameron also gave 150 extras on the movie a background story and name. The filmmaker met with each extra one by one and explained to them who their characters were, their relationships, and their backstories. When production began, the movie's lead actors hit it off immediately. Kate Winslet said she and Leo were best friends for the seven months of shooting. Not a couple, though, as tabloid newspapers reported at the time. She says they smoked hand-rolled cigarettes and looked at the stars between shots. A couple of goofy kids who sang songs together and talked about sex. Winslet told Rolling Stone magazine in 1998, it was their friendship that helped make the grueling work on set more bearable. It was no secret that the shoot was an epic nightmare for nearly everyone involved. Cameron has always said that filming a movie is like going to war, and on this film, the description couldn't have been more accurate. The cast and crew reportedly survived on four hours sleep per day. Some slept on their feet, leaning against walls, and Cameron placed bets on who would collapse first. When they were filming sinking scenes, Cameron warned that anyone who left the water to relieve themselves would be fired. Winslet and others openly admit they peed in the water many times. She also famously told the Los Angeles Times how much she hated the whole ordeal. Winslet said, For the first time in my life on a film set, I was thinking, I wish I wasn't here. Some days I'd wake up and think, please God, let me die. But Cameron insisted no one was in any danger and shot down rumors that the actors were being forced to float in freezing cold water for hours on end. He says the water temperature was always kept at a pleasant 82 degrees. 
Filming at the Mexican beach town of Rosarito began in September 1996, and only a few weeks into production, it was a total mess. The epic film was already behind schedule and $10 million over budget. Fox executives were getting very nervous. Stories began rumbling around Hollywood that Fox was desperate to sell off some of the film's rights, and Paramount Pictures jumped at the chance, signing a deal to split the $110 million budget. And just to keep things on track, supervising producer Marty Katz was sent to the set to oversee filming. Plus, in a surprising move, James Cameron gave up his director and producer fee of $10 million. He traded the fee for points on the back end, which means he would be making a percentage of the profits instead. It was a gamble that would pay off big time. The media delighted in reporting on the cost overruns and the troubles on set. Many had been critical of the project from the beginning, asking what was the point of a movie where everyone knows how it ends? A Time Magazine article published in November 1996, eight weeks into production, said sources pegged the movie's burgeoning budget as high as $180 million, which would make it the most expensive film ever made. The article argued that budget would make sense if Cameron was making another big action flick starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, but a period movie without any major stars was unimaginable. It seemed impossible to critics that Fox and Paramount would make any money on the epic venture. Filming wrapped in March 1997. 138 days of shooting turned into 160 days, which equaled seven months on set. The total cost had ballooned to $200 million, a new record in Hollywood. Paramount's investment had been capped at $65 million, so Fox was on the hook for the rest. The original release date was planned for July 1997, but there was no chance of meeting that deadline, so the opening was pushed to December. That's when Hollywood releases smaller, critically acclaimed films looking for Oscars, not blockbusters, which usually drop in the summer months. And there was another problem. Cameron's final cut was three hours and 14 minutes long, which is an issue for theaters because they can't schedule as many screenings in one day when the run times are that long. And ultimately, that means less ticket sales. But it would soon become clear that nothing was going to stand in the way of James Cameron's juggernaut. Before its worldwide release, Titanic premiered at the Tokyo Film Festival on November 1st, 1997. The crowd, made up mostly of teenage girls, were jammed six deep along the tree-lined street outside Tokyo's Orchard Hall Theatre. Some fans slept overnight for as many as three nights, hoping to catch a glimpse of the movie's star and growing heartthrob Leonardo DiCaprio. But much to their disappointment, he was hustled in through a side entrance. The excited fans only managed to catch a quick glimpse of James Cameron as he dashed from a car into the theatre. Inside, the mega-budget and much-delayed movie was a hit with the Japanese audience. They applauded loudly when the film began and ended, cried during the weepy scenes, and remained quiet in their seats for the entire 194-minute running time. James Cameron's first step to becoming king of the world was a success. When Titanic opened worldwide on December 19, 1997, all eyes were on the movie's ability to generate the big box office numbers it needed just to break even. On its opening weekend, it made $28 million and was number one at the box office. 
28 million isn't bad, but not out of this world either. For example, Scream 2 opened the weekend before and made $33 million. It's what happened next that made James Cameron's Titanic unsinkable. The epic love story slash disaster film became one of the quintessential water cooler films. People who saw it loved it, and they wanted to talk about it and share it with friends and family, especially teenage girls who were head over heels in love with Leo as Jack. They went back to see the movie two, three, and in some cases, 10 times. Jesse Cruikshank was one of those teens. I did see it more than once. I was not, I wish I was a 10, 12 kind of girl, but I remember my parents saying like, we're not giving you $8 to go to the movies anymore. I'm, I saw it with my best friend. I want to say we saw it four times in theaters when it came out. Meantime, movie critics were divided. They either loved it or hated it, or sometimes even both. Roger Ebert said Titanic was flawlessly crafted, intelligently constructed, strongly acted, and spellbinding. A New York Times review in December 97 praised Titanic, calling it a huge, thrilling three-and-a-quarter-hour experience that unerringly lures viewers into the beauty and heartbreak of its lost world. Some critics praised the second half when the ship went down, but took issue with the unlikely love story between Jack and Rose. I've got 10 bucks in my pocket. I have nothing to offer you, and I know that. I understand, but I'm too involved now. You jump, I jump, remember? I can't turn away without knowing you'll be all right. They called the dialogue clunky and corny and the performances by Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet unconvincing. Others hated it altogether. In a scathing review, Kenneth Turin from the LA Times said Titanic could be used in film schools as how not to write for Scream. He said the movie reeks of phoniness and lacks even minimal originality. But Jesse Cruikshank is having none of it. I will argue this to till the day I die. Titanic is one of the greatest movies of our, of our time. She says, sure, it's over the top at times, but in her opinion, that's what makes it great. This movie is camp in, in the way that we define that word now. Like, the dialogue is clunky. There are lines you cannot believe made the final pass of the script that are just so hokey, feel so uh, overwritten. Some of them are delivered in a way that, like I said, it's giving sitcom on the Titanic. And yet... I think the reason people love it by, by the same time is that you have to just give into that. One of those famous over-the-top moments happened when Rose meets Jack on the bow of the ship to say she has chosen him over her fiancé, Cal Hockley, played by the delightfully villainous Billy Zane. After telling Rose to close her eyes, Jack guides her to step up onto the railing at the tip of the vessel. Then he stretches out her arms. Following this magical moment, Jack softly begins singing a popular 1910 song called Come Josephine in My Flying Machine. You may or may not have noticed, but that song appears again later in the film when Rose is floating in the water waiting for a lifeboat to come close and save her. It took eight days of attempts before the film crew was able to capture that scene on the front of the ship. 
Cameron wanted an authentic sunset instead of using CGI, and it seemed like it might never happen. On the very last day of shooting, the sky was overcast, but a last-minute break in the clouds produced the sunset Cameron was looking for. Although the director later admitted the shot is slightly unfocused because of how quickly it was captured. That almost perfect sunset scene is just one of many ingrained into our collective memory of Titanic. In another iconic scene, Leonardo DiCaprio almost had to be forced to say his now infamous line. James Cameron told the BBC in 2019 that Jack's King of the World line wasn't originally in the script and was actually made up on the spot during filming. Cameron said he was up in the crane basket directing. They were losing light and they had tried a bunch of different lines, but none were working. So then Cameron got on the walkie-talkie and said to DiCaprio, All right, I've got one for you. Just say, I'm the king of the world and just spread your arms out wide and just be in the moment and just love it and celebrate the moment. DiCaprio replied, what? Cameron shot back, I'm king of the world, but you've got to sell it. Again, DiCaprio replied, what? An exasperated Cameron answered, just effing sell it. You can decide if DiCaprio managed to sell it or not, but there is no denying that scene and that line has become one of the most recognized of all time. Most people can also agree that Titanic was essentially two movies in one. The first is a sweeping love story that you may or may not think is corny, and the second is an undeniably stunning disaster flick, and it remains a cinematic achievement to this day. Amazingly, somehow Cameron made the sinking incredibly suspenseful, even though everyone essentially knew how things would end. To recreate the sinking of the Titanic, Cameron and crew used a combination of scale models, CGI, and camera tricks. The life-size replica of the ship was split into various sections, which allowed for sections to be tilted at different angles depending on the progress of the ship's sinking. For example, the front of the ship had a platform that allowed them to tilt the ship at 6 degrees, which was used to capture the initial sinking. The rear portion of the ship could tilt at a full 90 degrees, so that was used to capture the final moments of the doomed ship. Cameron also used a cinematic technique with the camera known as a Dutch angle, which slants the camera and makes the tilt of the ship more severe. As well, the waterline of the final shots were digitally altered to make the angles even more pronounced as the ship sinks further and further. And for those scenes that involved pieces of the ship breaking off or falling into the water, miniatures were used to capture those moments. While the sinking was a technical marvel, it was also an emotional journey for viewers, especially that famous montage of the doomed passengers left on board the ship. As the band plays their final song, we see people fleeing for their lives, but with nowhere to go and no rescue in sight. We see the ship's builder, Thomas Andrews, standing alone in the smoking room. Benjamin Guggenheim, dressed in his finest clothes, watching the water rise around the main staircase. And saddest of all, that elderly couple cradling each other in bed as the water rises around them. Incidentally, that husband and wife were based on a real-life couple, Isidore and Ida Strauss, who co-owned the Macy's department store. Ida could have escaped on a lifeboat, but chose to stay behind with her husband. 
if you weren't crying at this scene, were you even alive? To this day, Jessie Cruikshank says she weeps every time she watches Titanic. It's so manipulative. You can see James Cameron standing on the giant soundstage like, you know, Dr. Evil rubbing his fingers together, knowing like, oh, this is the moment. This is it. For me, I remember it's the it's the moment she jumps off the lifeboat and he grabs her. And this is again Leo's performance. He grabs her and he says, you're so stupid, Rose. Why are you so stupid? And they're kissing and they're crying like that's the first time I lose it. And then it's just all downhill from there. Rose's decision to leave the lifeboat inevitably leads her and Jack to the icy cold waters of the Atlantic. Rose floating on a wooden door, a shivering Jack hanging on for as long as he can. Promise me now, Rose. And never let go of that promise. I promise. Never let go. I will never let go, Jack. And this has led us to the inevitable part of the podcast where we talk about whether Jack could have fit on the door with Rose, a debate that continues to rage more than 25 years since Titanic was released. James Cameron has long dismissed that the question is even up for debate. For him, it's black and white. The script says Jack dies, so he has to die. Missing the point, in my opinion, that he wrote the script and could have changed it. But I guess what Cameron means and what he has argued in multiple interviews over the years is that Jack's death was essential to the plot. His death gave Rose the will to live. Regardless, fans have argued with zeal whether Jack could have physically fit on the door. Even the show Mythbusters tackled the issue in 2012 with an experiment that concluded that plausibly both Jack and Rose could have fit on the door. Jesse Cruikshank absolutely believes Jack could have fit. And I do have questions. Again, uh, perhaps a note for James Cameron, why you would have made the door as large as you did. As a director, for your viewers, just make that door half the size. Make it clear to all that he couldn't have fit on the door. In February 2023, as part of a National Geographic special marking the film's 25th anniversary, James Cameron conducted a scientific study that he hoped would solve the debate once and for all. The director enlisted help from a team of scientists and stunt people to test four different scenarios to examine whether two people could have shared the door and survived. Ultimately, Cameron concludes Jack might have lived, but there's a lot of variables. Even though the star of the movie did not survive, Titanic was unsinkable. After opening in December 1997, the movie stayed at number one for 15 weeks in a row and became such a massive cultural phenomenon that it didn't close in theaters until nearly one year later in October 1998. As I mentioned earlier, lots of people, especially teen girls, saw Titanic multiple times. In the end, James Cameron's epic film earned $1.8 billion worldwide, which was the highest grossing film until 2010 when Avatar, another Cameron blockbuster, beat that record. Titanic also cleaned up at the Oscars in March 1998, nominated for a record 14 Academy Awards and collecting 11, including Best Picture and Best Director. 
On his third trip to the podium, James Cameron raised eyebrows when he quoted a famous line from his movie. Mom, Dad, there's no way that I can express to you what I'm feeling right now. My heart is full to bursting, except to say, I'm the king of the world! Cameron received quite a bit of backlash for this comment. Critics called it undignified and arrogant. But at the time, Cameron chalked up the negative feedback to jealousy. Today, however, he's a little more self-aware and realizes quoting a line from your own movie is slightly cringy. Another winner that night was the Titanic theme song, My Heart Will Go On, written by James Horner and Will Jennings and performed by Celine Dion. The big emotional ballad is so tightly linked to the movie that it's hard to imagine Titanic without it. But James Cameron was actually not a fan at first. He didn't think a modern pop song at the end of a period film made sense. But the studio pressured him into including it. In case the movie was a flop, at least they could have a hit song on the pop charts. Celine Dion also wasn't that interested in recording the song initially. She had already made a couple of soundtrack hits, including the theme song for Beauty and the Beast, and wanted to do something different. Plus, when she heard James Horner play the song on a piano in her Las Vegas hotel suite, she wasn't that impressed. Dion says Horner, who died in a 2015 plane crash, didn't do a great job selling the song because he wasn't a natural singer. So she mouthed, I don't want to sing that song, to her husband and manager, René Angelil. Angelil, however, saw potential and stopped Horner's performance and agreed to have Dion record a demo. Dion still wasn't pleased when she arrived in New York City a few weeks later to lay down vocals, but she ultimately came through. After Horner gave Dion a quick summary of the Titanic plot, the singer dimmed the lights and stepped into the vocal booth. Moved by the story and buzzing from black coffee, which sped up her vibrato, Dion nailed the demo in a single take. In the decades since, Dion has continued blowing minds and making audiences weep with her live renditions of My Heart Will Go On. In 2017, she marked the song's 20th anniversary with a beautiful performance at the Billboard Music Awards. And in January 2016, she live-streamed the song from a stage in Las Vegas so her husband could see her perform it one last time before he died from cancer. Today, My Heart Will Go On and multiple scenes from Titanic have ascended to the highest level of pop culture. While they are adored and cherished by nostalgic fans, they've also become the subject of endless memes and parodies. Barely a day goes by when you don't come across a social media post with captions related to the movie. Things like, I want you to draw me like one of your French girls. It's been 84 years. Or of course, I'm king of the world. It might have been tacky for James Cameron to say it, but not so for a cat sitting on a fridge or a tourist standing at the front of a ferry. The movie Titanic, much like the actual disaster, is now permanently part of our historical DNA. Thanks for listening to this deep dive into James Cameron's Titanic. And thanks to Jesse Cruikshank for chatting about one of her favorite movies. You can catch Jessie on her hilarious podcast, Phone a Friend, wherever you stream audio. 
I'll put links in the show notes. Thanks also to all of the listeners who have requested this topic over the past few years, including Tita, Ben, Megan, Jess, and Cecilia. If you have an idea for an episode, please let me know. Just send a message on social media. I'm on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That 90s Podcast. You can also send an email to 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Gonzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 